Hello, welcome to episode two of the podcast. Today we're talking about For the Love of Sarah Kane. My task to, was to read Sarah's first play, Blasted, and my guest is James. Hi. Hi, James. Tell us about yourself. Um, my name is James. I'm from Yorkshire. I've lived in Belfast since I was 18. And I went to Queen's to the drama, which was around the time I got introduced to the play. And yeah, so it's sort of uh, burnt into my memory since then. So. Okay. So you've read many playwrights, many authors. Yes. Um, the podcast is all about things you have a particular passion for. You've chosen Sarah Kane and this play in particular. Why her out of out of everyone? Um, I was recently asked about what my favourite production of any play was, and then I answered that it was the Greer Theatre Company, who are a disabled theatre company based in England, and they did a production of Sarah Kane's Blasted in Soho Theatre in 2007 and I just it I don't know it was just a real proper experience it didn't feel like people just rattling off a play it just felt like a I think the uh, the fact that obviously they had impairments and they weren't acted they were genuine authentic but I think it really played into the themes and and the viscerality of the play itself mm -hmm. so and so that kind of led me to return to the play and I had another read of it recently and just it just it's unlike anything else I've ever read or experienced really I have to say that it was not what I expected um when you were talking about it you were talking about how it um uh, came onto the scene and was quite with quite a splash. Yeah. Um, and that part of it was possibly because of the fact that Sarah's was a woman. Yeah. Um, and part of it could have just been the the content of the play. But all you told me was that there's it's in a hotel room and then there's an explosion. And so the fight was going right. Okay. So was expecting at some point an explosion. But everything leading up to that and everything that happened after that was completely unexpected yeah um and i have to say i don't want to ruin it too much for people because i do really think people should read the play um it explored a lot of very interesting themes so it's interesting that you are talking about it being done by a company with disabilities because obviously there's an explosion um within the explosion there's obviously um injuries that happen um there's also quite violent um things that happen to one of the characters. In terms of that production, well, well, to all the characters, yes. No, no one escapes. Um, do you think then that in terms of seeing that production um, coming into theatre at the time that you did, that's what gave you the nostalgia for the play? Do you think that if it had been a poor production that the work would have stood up on its own? I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of terrible Sarah Kane productions as Sarah Kane saw terrible productions of her own plays. Um, I believe there was a German production around the time she was, she, you know, she had a very short um, lifespan, but um, I think she went to see a production in Germany and um, obviously there's lots of violence and there's lots of um, very sharp, um, provocative lines in the play and I think obviously around the time Tarantino was becoming very popular and I think her offence at the production was that it was kind of making it out to be kind of a cool play so Ian's character um, was in a leather jacket and had like dark sunglasses on and um, again we're tripping on spoilers but um, I think if we're going to talk about the play we'll talk about the play yes. but um, so obviously something terrible happens to a female character in the play and um, 
in the production, she was walking around as if nothing had happened, and she got really offended by that because she just thought it was they that the production was prioritizing the provocation of the material mm-hmm. over the characters and the, char- the characters' narrative and how they were feeling at the time and how they would behave at that particular point. So I think it's it's a thing I suppose with provocative plays that are you really engaging in the characters and their storyline and their thought processes and their reactions to events or are you going to go well let's make it as provocative as as we can and stuff so I, I thought it was really interesting from um from her as a writer reacting negatively towards this production in that way so i think um as well we're talking about the characters early on i think what i Yes, okay, things happen to the characters physically, which obviously um, could relay into a disabled theatre company doing that production, but what I think is actually starts from the very beginning of the play because it's a very intimate show and these characters are very... Um, they have limitations both physically and both um, person, uh, personality-wise, and I think it related into that as well because you had um, Kate's character's actor had I think spina bifida or uh, multiple sclerosis and I think the Ian's character was temporary had a temporal vision so it made him very kind of expanded his character as he walked around which I think kind of related to his character and, and Kate's character is obviously very uh, physically brittle I don't think she's mentally brittle because I think she's actually very like I was reading it again today and I, I found that her character is much less concerned about mortality than Ian's character even though Ian's character is very obviously very aggressive and stuff but I think that she was so yeah I don't know like he gets really unnerved because I think her one weapon in the play is laughter which she throws she doesn't throw it because obviously I don't think it's intentional but she laughs at really inappropriate times in the play and that's one of the things that makes him really nervous and I find find it really interesting that she has although I don't think it's intentional but there is this one weapon that this character who is a younger female she's 20 years younger than Ian um I just think it's really interesting that she has this thing that just really unnerves him and I do I do find it kind of a weapon that she has which makes it interesting when you have an older man who is sexually uh, dominant and sexually inappropriate and obviously she's very, she's young and she's quite timid but um, I don't know, I thought it was really interesting. It is, it is interesting some of the things you're saying there about like um, Tarantino and the, some of the things that we accept in terms of uh, portrayal of violence on the screen and a lot of people will be like oh Tarantino's great and uh, his films are gratuitously violent he he accepts it he leans into it um in terms of the reception of this play so this play there's themes of rape um there's um really uncomfortable types of physical violence um there's we'll, we'll get into some of the details of that but there's things that that happen that that would be considered unconventional type violence almost oh, like yeah. what we would call maybe maybe today like torture porn yeah, you know, yeah kind of like hostile yeah, yeah. and yeah. those those types of films yeah. do you think had she been a male that this would have even registered on the scale of things um uh, in well, terms of, of of making any uh, type of impact well it it's it's a quandary because a the play was Producing 995, which is quite a long time ago now. It's quite an old play, oddly now. But um, but also I think, oh, no, because it, it's a violent play, a violence for violence. So I think it's going to be provocative in any way. I don't, I think it would have had perhaps negative reviews 
in a way just because I mean I don't get shot by much but some of it's it's really really brutal but um, almost imaginatively brutally I think it still would have had a level of hostility towards it mm -hmm. because it is so graphic but then again but I think it how many plays reach like front page broadsheet news about you know the reviews of the play about mm -hmm. god this is like the worst thing that's ever happened and it is a play and it's a play I guess in that sense when you're talking about you know it made it, it when it came out it was it was front page news about how horrible it was if if it had been a man are is the thinking that it would have just been expected that this is how male writers write and so the reviews wouldn't have been front page it would have been just in the normal theater I think, section i think there would have been a backlash probably by women but i don't think it would have been a generalized backlash which okay. is what happens so it's 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 a it's a well done play it's a good play but it's got a lot of those shocking elements to it yeah is she a good writer um I I don't hook into the good writing conversation okay. with regards to this play. You and I have discussed Wuthering Heights. Yes. And it is a play by a young woman. It's a play that is derived but also adulated. And I have the opinion that I don't think it's particularly well written. However, I do understand its power and it has a power. I don't, let's call it classic, that's very aggressive. <laughs> but I just think... I think it's published under Penguin Classics. Uh, well, that's debatable. But, uh, <laughs> but no, but I, th I think it's, for me, it's in the same bracket of something that I don't think is particularly well-written in the in the well-written book or well-written play okay. sort of formality. But I do, it, it just does, it just has an enigma to it and it just does something that a lot of things don't do. And it doesn't have to be well-written, really. For me, this play because I just think it it is almost like it's suffocating to watch because mm -hmm. it is just watching these, for the most part, two of these characters who don't seem to like each other a lot. Like Ian's no. constantly saying because Ian says, "Oh, I stink." He's like constantly trying to comment about his smell and um, he's commenting about Kate looking like a lesbian by the way she dresses and um, he's not very pleasant. But then she spends a lot of time admitting that she doesn't like him but they're in this odd thing i i think this plays a lot about loneliness i think it's about loneliness and the sort of a, a attachment you have with people in your proximity like there's a scene where towards the end when the soldier's wielding his gun and ian's saying are you gonna shoot me and he went no i can't shoot you because then i'll be lonely and it's this thing where like even though I should do something, the consequence of it will affect me. So I'm so again, I'll there's quite a selfishness yeah. about it as well. So, and then Ian, when he's compromised in the situation again, no one to give too many spoilers. But um, he goes, uh, "Can you touch me so I know you're here?" And again, there's these so, these beautiful lines that are just so wrought, especially towards the end when it gets really, really like grim. The, the whole structure of the play as well, so there is something that I was talking to you about in terms of like the timelessness of it and the um, displacement of it. There's yeah. no there's no kind of solid uh, hook or anchor to put yourself in, so you can't you can't even visualize where they're at. You, yeah. you know they're in a hotel, yeah. you know they're sitting in a hotel room, so the whole play opens up where you're in this 
uncomfortable setting where you know it's an older man and a younger woman. You don't really know what the situation is. They don't seem to like each other. They They don't seem to like each other. They're horrible to each other. He's horrible to her. She's kind of going, I don't want to be here. They have some physical connections at some point and start messing around and then it's like, no, stop touching me. Oh, no, you touch me. And and you're kind of going... Why the end of why scene one. The, ending, end, the end, end of together. scene one. End of scene one. He says, "I love you," and she says, "I don't love you." Yeah, and then and then they're still there in scene two for reasons. What? But yes, but then there's the, you're not really sure what's going on. There's an implication that possibly he forced her to do something physically, or but then it, well, no, he, well, no, I don't think it's suggested. Her first line in scene two is "cunt," so yes, I think I, it's <laughs> sort of implying that there's. There's a fraught relationship going on here. It's fraught, but also, it's 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 one of those things where she comes across as I don't want to be doing this, but I am doing it. She's she's cons- it's not against her will, um, like she's consenting in a sense of like I'm staying here, you know, and you don't get the sense, you know. He talks about like the door being locked and all of that, but also she goes and like opens the door. So it's really hard to know. Is it is it like a kidnapper it's, it's, situation? I think, it's I really think difficult to to figure out what's happening. And I think there's this thing where, again, there's uh, sandwiches being delivered. There's constant references to bellboys, so yes. she can leave that door. Like it's it's presumptively yeah yeah. Yes. So, but so uh, yeah no, it's it's a spatial consent. So for some reason or other, she continues to be in this space. But what I is why she come back in scene five? Like because four fine because she's you know she's carrying a baby and well, but th- then again, so is the environment <laughs> that has that's happened so awful right? That she has to return to the only person she knows. Is the outside only, so bad? And then has the only person she has a connection with, the only person she... As horrible a connection as it is, it's still, still a connection. Something. You think it's about this relationship between these people, and then an explosion happens, and then you're going, we're in the middle of a war. The soldier comes in, does brutality in the way that you would expect a soldier to do. In that sense, you're kind of going, right, so she's trying to portray the brutality of war. But then... It's, it's it's this really interesting idea of these people, these characters, the way she's written them, they're from England. Yeah. Does that feed into kind of that sense of Western society maybe being very far removed from from war? Yeah. And, and, and so maybe she returns because th- that sense of how to survive through something like that just isn't, isn't inherent in, in where we're at. But to me, that's the that's whole uh, concept of the play, because from what I hear, Sarah was re- writing the first act, or sorry, the first scene, and it was in a hotel room, and they've got two white characters, white characters that, you know, obviously have an intimate relationship, but it's not really happening anywhere else, there's no real big sort of context to it. And then she was read, watching the coverage of the Bosnian War in the mid-90s, and I think she watched this footage, and she was looking at this horror, looking at this sort of little play about two people who, you know, in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. And she was going, what, what the fuck am I writing here? Like, why does it matter compared to the horror that I'm seeing on these you know, TV screens every night? So I think what happened then is that she dragged current affairs and, mm-hmm. and a more global situation and it crashed into a play, which I think is from why I believe it wasn't her intention to have the second half, the second half when she was starting the play. But as she got on with the play, I think she became even more a bit disrespected by her own writing mm-hmm. and went, actually, no, let's make it into something else. So then it becomes this, you know, this King Lyrian horror for the second half. It does, it does feel quite disjointed in that sense. Yeah. Do you think that that was on purpose? Like she was, she, it seems like she was aware of that change in that sense, but maybe does she 
make it because it, it could be very two distinct plays you could almost do this play in like two short parts yeah. like this is you know a relationship about a man and a woman and then do the second half of this is a, a, a play about the horrors of war I think she got disaffected by her own writing towards the end of scene one because I think I've read interviews and stuff mm-hmm. so maybe attest to that no, not disaffected I think she just got to the end about halfway through and just went let's blow the whole play up let's make it something else so I think that's probably what happened there but no god um beautifulest set change I've ever seen on stage. It was in the theatre, it was just this hotel room, and then this, again, this is the Greer Theatre Comedy Show, and big explosion, they turn the bed around, and then the bed comes from like a nice, slick, Egyptian cotton hotel bed, to like corrugated steel, and the underside is all mangled, and then rose petals fall from the ceiling, and that's it, and then it's And what about the the violent parts of it? The soldier had no legs. Had no legs, like he was walking on his hands in the production. An actor, this is a disabled actor, this is not acting, this is just doing it. And took out his vesticle leg to penetrate Ian's character. And it was weird because it just wasn't acting, it was just this really weird, it was really real and very raw. That changes that whole dynamic because obviously. It, but it come, it, he looks like a soldier. He looks like a soldier right. blown up in a war. Like so, it did. But it's it, for me because obviously I've I've not seen the production of the play. I've never heard of the play and, until you had talked to me about it. But obviously, when I'm thinking about it, um, there's an explosion and I'm picturing like the soldier, you know, kind of walking through and seeing that and not being affected at all by yeah. the fact that there's been this huge explosion. Yeah. Whereas the production, the way you said it, is like the soldier's actually lost his legs in this production yeah, and, and you go um and it he still manages to find the power in the situation that he finds himself with the inn i can see how that would be quite a powerful portrayal of that because for me i'm kind of thinking oh he, an explosion happens and then he's walking along and then walks in and then yeah. sees a vulnerable person and yeah. decides to take advantage of the situation yeah. and the whole conversation that they have there you know where he's talking about it, it, it's almost that sense of you almost want to feel sympathetic for him because he's kind of going you know my background is a, i've been in this war and there's been yeah. a violation of of the woman that I loved, yeah, and, and, yeah. and 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 then and my whole life is is over. There's nothing left to go back to, and so I can only move forward. But then when you're talking about how they've done it, where actually he's part of this explosion and very clearly not going to survive. You know, you don't survive yeah. getting your legs blown off. But yeah, again, it's that it's that thing as well of it not being just not being acted or there's no mm. there's no facade about it. It's not mm. an actor pretending not to have no legs. Mm. That actor has no legs. Yes. You go, oh God, okay, and it makes it a bit more real or something. Just reading it, you're kind of, it, it leaves that, that, that pit in your stomach. And I think I had, when we had initial discussions about this, I had mentioned, you know, that um, the Julie Tamar production of um, Titus Andronicus, yep. the, the part where Lavinia has, they've cut off her hands and they've stuck branches into it and then she opens her mouth and then the blood just flows because they've obviously cut off her tongue and it immediately brought that scene back to me in my head because I had that same like pit of my stomach like sick feeling of oh you know what's happened here and and just the whole situation not even the 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 specific acts of violence but that whole kind of thing of like what would I do if I was in this situation I have no no idea no connection to to war famine poverty um that real desperation you do inhumane things almost in an attempt to try and recapture humanity because yeah. you don't know what else to do. Almost that, that feral sense of, if I can just make that reconnection with another human, yeah. you know, I'll be okay. But that's the thing as well towards the end, especially when you have Ian's section when he's gone blind and, mm. and it is almost 
I need to sleep, I need to eat, mm -hmm. and it just, it's almost like, that's it. So it's, it's not, oh, I'm going to write that because they're going to laugh at that, I'm going to write that because they're going to think, oh, that's a really emotional part of play. It's it just, it's so... There's not even a redemption of the character. No, at the no, end of it, it, just, it just, you feel pity, but he's he's not any nicer at the end. Yeah. Did you do? He hasn't really changed who he is fundamentally after yeah. going through all of this. Yeah. He's still kind of the same person that we saw in the beginning. Yeah. When Kate comes back, it's still kind of that dynamic, and you're kind of going, "Is this really it? Is that it?" And it, you know, it just kind of leaves you with that feeling of like, "Oh, oh that was a bummer." That was a punch in the face. <laughs> yeah. It is what, it's one of those things that it, it leaves that impression, um, but also kind of that idea of, did I, I almost wanted to go back and go, did I actually read that? Was that, did I, did my imagination make well, it go in bits? Well, it's a nightmare. What? I mean, Kate says yeah. three or four times, she goes, you're a nightmare. How do you find the inherent racism in the, yeah. <laughs> a lot of imaginative terms for all. Yes, um, Ian um, is not, um, it, it, it just, He's he's a horrible person. There's no redeeming qualities in him in the beginning. He is he's racist the way he talks about not only Kate, the person who he supposedly loves, but just any person of color. I um there's the section where he's talking about stories mm. and he's talking about um car salesman who's with the prostitutes and he's saying oh that's that's a story because it's because I think it's almost like it's involving white women and it's a clean story and it's fine but then obviously whenever because i think god is this extraordinary thing when he's talking about oh no one cares about black people why give them the light of day and you go that's extraordinary like that's but then but then you go it's 2020 and often and that's where we're at today. and this is it the racism that he expresses is the racism we hear today in 2020 yeah. um the racism that was very evident in, in 1995 and even the sexism when you're um, the, the sexual violence, Ian is, is subject to more sexual violence than, than Kate is, yeah. so the, the male is, you know, you know, the person who's, um, but. subject to that. So was, some of the themes that she's exploring there are actually quite progressive and quite a mirror into the human condition in general. But then, because she, I think, again, there was another scene I was reading, rereading again, was he gets her to masturbate him. Mm -hmm. and, he then does the thing, well, the gaslighting thing of going, oh, um, uh, my cop saw whenever I don't come, and yes. oh, you can't, like, he makes her masturbate uh, uh, him off. And, uh, but then she says, I'm sorry after that. Mm -hmm. So it's that thing again of, of feeling guilty and feeling mm -hmm. like it's your fault. And, but um, yeah, so I thought that again just sounded very relative and relevant to today. And, yeah, and the other thing about her not being able to leave or her be having the opportunity to leave and not leaving, presumably could have left because she went to the door and opened the yeah. door and, and brought in the sandwiches. She could have just walked out the door, but she yeah. didn't. But then we hear a lot about how, you know, people who are in um, violent relationships, different things like that, oh, have like plenty of opportunities to yeah, leave, but because of whether... Stockholm syndrome. Sort of. Or being brainwashed or accepting yeah. the language of your, your perpetrator. So, yeah. but in a sense, experiencing things that uh, in 1995 even the research and the different things around relationship dynamics wouldn't have even yeah. necessarily been that prevalent yeah. I'm sure stalking I don't think was a crime until 97 I think yeah, like, yeah. Like, so even that he says I love you a lot mm. to Kate A do you think that's true and B in what capacity do you think that's true he says it in a way that does make you think that he is that it what is maybe one of his more genuine moments and I find the concept of, of the construct we put around those words um, 
quite interesting in general. So, you know, um, when people say I love you, how how much weight that's supposed to carry. So um, I honestly do think it is one of the times that it's genuine. Now, I think the way he loves her is, is brutal and violent and um, selfish and and all of that. I, I, I honestly think that he believes he loves her and believes that it's what he can offer her. But I don't think it's a healthy love. Why do you think ultimately she stays in the room if at the end of scene one she says, I don't love you? So she hasn't. She doesn't have that. I, I think that has more to do with what we're talking about in terms of the dynamic. So you can recognize that you don't love someone and say that to someone in the sense that I think part of it is her recognizing and understanding that he is genuinely saying that he loves her, yeah. but not being able to extricate yourself from that situation, yeah, even though you know it's wrong for you, even though you know it's unhealthy, even though you know it's damaging. Yeah. Sometimes it the only thing you know and almost the the alternative so like you were saying previously the alternative is worse than what you have before you um and i think a lot of relationships are like that in that sense of when you look at that dynamic where one person is genuinely believes that this is love and this is the best way to do love and it's it's unhealthy and it's damaging and it's horrible for the other person but the other person even though they recognize that can't take themselves out of that situation because it's what they know yeah and there's a certain comfort level to that or it could just be because she couldn't get an Uber that day. This is it. They say, they say, tra- train's not going until seven. I'm going to stay overnight. This I mean, I, I think the difficulty is because you don't really, you don't get the context of what's going on outside. So you're kind of reading into this whole thing of like, why is she there? And then you find out, well, there's a war outside. And if she goes outside, yeah. she could be raped and mutilated and, and yeah. all of the horrible things that happen in war. So actually being in, but because in the first scene, she's talking about her boyfriend and, and all of this. So you don't get any sense that there's all this peril outside. Yeah. When you understand that there's all this peril outside, then you're going, well, of course she's going to stay in there because it's a hotel room and things seem to be relatively safe. The and there's service and there's sandwiches. This and, is, well, this is it. And, this is, well, the room service. This right? is it. In, in a wartime, I want room service. Right? This is it. I mean, so you're kind of going, well, it's not that bad of a situation yet. Yeah. You know, this guy is here, but she knows him at least. And There's she, unlimited gin. So it doesn't seem that bad when you have the context of if you go outside, there's soldiers out there yeah, who no, are going to kill you. Yeah. Or or worse, do worse, and then kill you. In some sense, you're going, oh, well, I perfectly understand what she's doing now. So that's Blasted, which is quite the play. Sarah Kane committed yes. suicide. So yes. I guess, you know, that's something just to say in terms of you talked about the fact that she had a short lifespan, so she was in her 20s when yeah. she committed suicide. So do you think, based on the body of work that she did produce, that she would have been a playwright that would have stood the test of time? Do you think that Blasted stands the test of time because well, of some of its content, but also because of the fact that she's no longer living? Well, we can jump forward to the last play. Now, it's a bit contentious for me because 448 Psychosis was her last produced play. But it wasn't finished, so this is her work. I think she did five plays. Became increasingly more um, experimental, as we say, mm-hmm. and a bit more sort of lucid. So I think she did Phaedra's Love, which was uh, like a Greek adaptation, which became kind of trendy to do. Mm-hmm. And then she did Crave, but I think for Very Psychosis, um, she became less and less involved with characters and more and more with voices. So she stopped assigning names oh. to characters and they became letters and then she got rid of letters and they just became lines so they became just you know almost like poetry um i think she was admitted to a psychiatric unit um in the late 90s and i think she got a bit better and then she was writing this 
this poem, which was obviously about her shooting sort of psychiatric pills and she wasn't feeling well and obviously was, was mm -hmm. sort of struggling. But I don't like when people produce plays, like when the person hasn't finished it. I just, I don't, I don't get it. I just go, I haven't finished it, so I haven't declared whether it's a play. I haven't declared, right. especially when Four Forty Psychosis, which has no characters, could have been a poem, could have been, you know, a book. So they produced it on the assumption that it was a play. Yeah, I don't like when people do that because mm. I just go, that's someone's writing. It could be anything. If she had only written that play, yeah, and hadn't written anything else, would it have been something made the impression that it did? Is it is it because you see the madness in in her works as as it's going, and then obviously she has this very tragic story. And and you know how it, you know posthumously how things become more sometimes they more revered, more so. Yeah, yes, yes, and and so because of that, it is this is this some of the case with with I, with her. I, as a writer, I don't think she would have been as prominent mm -hmm. because there would have been one great play, right. and um, it was stuck in January. No, I I, th I don't think no, because it's my favourite of her plays. So I don't think there's I, I'm too tied into her later plays or too yeah. tied into. Um, her narrative as much so i think it said no I, I don't think the potency of the play would have been as as diminished i don't think at all i just think i may have not come into contact with the play maybe because okay. it would have been maybe a random play when i was like 10 years old so mm. i would have maybe come to contact with it but i think no i don't think the potency of the play it's called blasted i mean that's that's a good strong title for a play <laughs> although it could be someone who's just really drunk on a saturday night or this it could be true. someone who's in a really well, that, that would have been bloated that would have been bloated so <laughs> right. but uh no um no i don't think so but then i i don't buy into i think she may have moved away from theater i don't know i just think her stuff seems yeah. to be more sort of the crave just had letters and then characters and then crave was at the edinburgh festival and she used a pseudonym because I think she just didn't want her name to be synonymous because people right. were expecting things of her. And I think she was almost moving away. Forfrey Psychosis wasn't violent, cleansed wasn't, uh, well, cleansed was, sorry, a crave wasn't violent. So I think she was moving away from violence and more into her own head or the well, more sort of stuff. Well, just to explore, I mean... Well, this is it, it. so you're not, you're not tied yeah. to, you know, you, it's like rock bands who do like a big first album, people want them to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. So I think it's, I, know, I think she was going to film as well, so I think she might have gone into other areas. I think she would probably would have been yeah. not as tied to theatre maybe and would have done things, but... Um, but it yeah. still holds. Let's say it's just a great play, just a great play. I have to say it was, I, w I would say, people reading plays and recommending plays, I would definitely say, you know, don't read it if you're squeamish, but it's definitely worth the read. Um, yes. Just I think for, for the experience of it, because it takes you in all different types of directions. Yes, I um, think it's just, it's um, unapologetically itself. I indeed. Think it's... So, Sarah Kane, any final words? I like your plays, <laughs> and thanks for writing them. Indeed. All Sarah. right. Thank you, Sarah Kane. <laughs>